0: I have a message for you today that's really just based on those two verses, 17 and 18. So, not covering a lot of ground in Philippians, but you might not believe it, but there are so many things to say about these two sentences that comprise verses 17 and 18.
1: And the idea of happiness Found in the right place is one of the things that comes out. There are all sorts of
0: things that come up in our life that can make us feel not happy in a moment or for a season, right? So, what are these hymn writers talking about when they say, Now I'm happy all the day? Really? All is at rest. Blessed assurance, all is at rest. Is it? Blessed assurance, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Yes. The answer to the question is yes. In the midst of difficulty and hardship, in Christ, in His Spirit, there is happiness for the Christian. Does it relieve all of the burden and the struggle and the difficulty of everything that we face in life? No. And that's why the Bible addresses, like, how to handle anxiety, for example, you know, go to the Lord with thanksgiving and prayer, right? The Bible teaches us uh, how to bear one another's burdens because we need to, because we fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible teaches us the importance of loving one another. You know, why is that? Because we need that. Because we're inclined to battle and struggle with things. But in the midst of all of that, there is the anchor, the foundational truth of the life of the Christian that all is at rest. Even when there's like a hurricane of circumstances blowing and swirling all around me, the real truth, the real truth of the matter is for the Christian all is at rest. It's why the hymn writer could say, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say it as well with my soul. These hymn writers knew some stuff, right? Yeah, you know, I don't think their words last because they're empty sentiments. I think the words of these hymns last and sometimes over a hundred years old or so, we continue to sing them. Not because we're stuck on tradition, but these words are valuable and important to us. They come come from an era of church history where writing and setting to music, hymns like that, was just a prolific activity. Modern songs still capture a lot of wonderful Christian truths as well. But there's something about the the, the traditional hymns that have been part of the English-speaking church for a couple of hundred years uh, in America and, and, and elsewhere that make those things valuable. But aside from that, the truth is there can be joy, there can be happiness, even in the midst of hard times. Who was in a harder time than the Apostle Paul? Some of you here today might raise your hand and say, "I am," and you might be right. I happen to know, from talking to a few people in the room, some very difficult things happening in your lives right now. And uh, but here we have the words of someone who was in one such time. He was in prison. And he did not know if he was going to live or if he was going to die. You know that context already, right? And these two sentences that he says here really reflect an uncanny kind of peace and happiness that is found in something that I think is indispensable for every Christian to realize. And I want to share that with you today. Uh, Just one more word of introduction before I pray. What has Paul been doing in the text leading up to this point? He has been showing us Christ, right? He has been showing us the humility of Christ. He has been showing us that Christ, though God, took on the form of something very, very inferior to God, He took on the form of us, right? And he walked in fear and trembling and humility in this world, and he surrendered his life. And while what Christ did most importantly and fundamentally was to pay the price for our sins when he died and rose from the dead, here the Apostle Paul takes what Christ did and goes beyond the sacrifice that he made and shows us the example of his life when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That was the mind of the humble servant. That mind should be in you as well. So Paul puts forth in the text here the example of Jesus and his humility for every Christian to follow, which we've gone over again and again the last couple of weeks. And the kind of the crux of it all was up there in verse 15 when he said, 14 and 15, everything you do, do without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's the goal. That's the goal, is everything we do, no complaining, no disputing. We talked about complaining and disputing. Because we want to be blameless and harmless in the midst of our generation. We want to shine as lights in the world. We want our lives to reflect and show what Jesus exemplified in His own life. Right? And verse 16, holding fast the word of life. You know, the power of the passage is that the conduct of the Christian, fear and trembling... Humble, following the example of Christ, is linked with what? The gospel. That's the word of life. So we're holding fast. That is, we are preaching to the world and ourselves standing on the truth of the gospel. And as we go along, standing on the truth of the gospel, it is from the position of humility as as exemplified by Christ. Right? So, we're, we're going forth and all that, and Paul presents this great example. Then he gets down to verse 17, and here's where I'll stop and I'll pray for a moment, but when he gets to verse 17, he does this, this, this amazing thing, perhaps perhaps not even, I don't know, maybe not even intentionally, but after he presents us the example of Christ, he presents us the example of himself. That's, that's a pretty... I don't think he means to. He's certainly not proud at all. You know, I don't think Paul had anything about him that was showy or desired the spotlight or anything like that. But in verses 17 and 18, what he does is he says a personal word to the church, but in so doing, he reveals in his own life how the humility of Christ is put into practice and how it is, listen, that he can have
1: Happiness. Even while he sits in a jail cell wondering if he's going to die. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, Lord God, I pray that You would help me to explain these sentences in the way that
0: that I've studied them and, and come to understand them as You've... Show me, and help us all together, Lord God, and to, to listen, to receive these things. And as always, Lord, it almost is like a formality when I say this, because we say it so much, but really, truly help us to be doers of this and not only hearers. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen. Before I say another word, I want to say hello to Addie and to Melissa who I have inside information knowing that they're driving a car on the highway somewhere in the Midwest on their way home from Missouri to Michigan and they said they would be riding in the car and listen to this so
1: everybody turn and look at the camera up there and wave to Addie and Melissa Hello There you go A Facebook shout out. Okay, listen to these words
0: now. Ready? Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith,
1: I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Wow. I guess the first thing I want to point out is
0: the word yes. The word yes is very important because strictly from a literary standpoint, it shows us that Paul is not abruptly bringing up some separate thought. The word yes, spoken or written in this way, would indicate that the thing that he just said reminded him to say this as well. Kind of like the word therefore, but but not exactly the same. So Paul says he speaks of doing everything without complaining and disputing, etc., etc., holding fast the word of life. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. Right? So he just got done telling them that... They should follow the example of Christ and be humble. They should do everything without complaining and disputing, which is also part of following the example of Christ. They should be harmless and blameless in their generation, like Christ. They should shine the light with their conduct as they hold fast to the gospel, like
1: Christ. And yes, by the way...
0: That's exactly what I'm trying to do, what he says. Right? So it's, it's a, it's, these thoughts are connected to the whole context of look at the example of the humility of Christ and walk in it yourself as a Christian. Now, I feel like there are some, there are some statements in here that, that, are, that are very interesting to pick apart, and I hope you'll bear with me and not think that I'm being too tedious about picking such a small passage of Scripture apart. But I would say to you that it would be very easy just to read this passage and view it as just a very informal, colloquial thing where Paul is just expressing goodwill towards them. But there are some things that he says here that that make references to things that are elsewhere in the Bible that without question there's some connection to, that it bears, if you're really going to be edified by expositing Scripture, then these are the things that you really have to notice. And then the first thing, we already mentioned, yes, and if I am being poured out. And I think it's important that you say something about the word if, right? The fact that he says, if I am being poured out, reflects what? it reflects that he's not sure if he's being poured out or not. And just to make it clear, I'll explain this more in a minute, but the idea here... <coughs> Excuse me. Can someone obtain water for me? And my throat is quite dry. There goes Chris.
1: Good job, Chris. Nice, thank you. So when he says if here...
0: When he says poured out, rather, here, he is speaking of his death, right? In other words, if I'm going to die, etc. and so forth. So when I see the word if, and even applied to the fact that he might die and he might live, what I see is this. I see that in this difficult matter, and listen, you're sitting here today and you might be engaged in a difficult matter in your life right now. What the Apostle Paul does here, and one of the reasons he is able to speak of joy and of happiness in this passage, is because he recognizes God's
1: sovereign authority over the circumstances of his life. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. Right? He recognizes God's
0: absolute sovereign authority over the circumstances of his life. And I think that's a great thing. God is sovereign in this matter that is facing the Apostle Paul. I think it's important for you and I to recognize that whether it is how we are taught to pray or even making plans for our lives, even the work of the ministry itself, even large decisions like who to marry or what job or where to move i think it's very important for christians to recognize that that if should always be in our hearts as well it is not wrong to plan it is right and wise to plan it is not wrong to apply wisdom to good decision making it's essential that you do that but it is always even in prayer important that the spirit of our hearts be, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? And so, when Paul says if here, realize that in this verse, he speaks of if I'm going to die, but he's not not really convinced whether he is or not, because if you peek ahead uh, at verse 23 in the same chapter he says therefore i hope to send him it's a reference to timothy i hope to send him at once as soon as i see how it goes with me right so there's some uncertainty of how things are going to go then he says but i trust in the lord that i myself shall also come shortly so so paul's expectation right paul's expectation is he's going to be released from this imprisonment and he's going to be able to go back and visit these churches. However, even though that's his expectation, he does not come flat out and say, I'm going to be getting out of prison and coming to seeing you. It makes those two sentences in verses 17 and 18 more remarkable. If I am being poured out as a drink offering. if He says, if I'm going to die, even though he expects that maybe, maybe he is going to come through this one.
1: What is that? That is a healthy Christian release of the burden of
0: circumstances to the hands of an almighty, all-knowing, sovereign God. That is not a cop-out. That is not setting aside responsibility of my life. That is deferring to God. True faith in God which recognizes that my relationship with God, my prayers, my study of His Word, my fellowship, that indispensable day-by-day relationship with God involves me recognizing His sovereign control over everything in my life. Right? It doesn't mean don't do anything. It doesn't mean just sit back and let life come to you like the wind blows. We are called to be wise and responsible, but certainly in this difficult matter, you see Paul recognizing God's sovereignty. The book of James says something on this matter that I'd like to uh, look at and then move on to the
1: the rest of the passage. So just quickly look at James chapter 4 with me. If you've read through the Bible, you've read frequently through the New Testament, you've studied the book of James, This verse
0: won't come as a surprise to you. But James chapter 4 and verse 13. What's best known about this passage that I'm going to read is the part about it that says your life is a vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away. What you ought to know is the context in which that statement is made. Because it's very powerful and it speaks directly to what we've already been talking about here today. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, what? If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James, the writer here, is uh, the half-brother of the Lord, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And when James writes this, James, as you know, writes strongly in this letter about the place that good works have in the life of a Christian. He is not contradicting the Gospel, of course. He is not contradicting Jesus. He is not contradicting Paul. But when he says faith without works is dead, you know, he says faith without works is like a person who says to a hungry or naked person that comes to his door... God bless you, be at peace, be warmed, and be filled, which sounds so spiritual, sounds so faithful, sounds so eloquent and God-honoring, but is absolutely worthless, right? So is faith without works. Absolutely worthless, that's the point. And when he gets to this passage down here, he's kind of on that subject, and what he's telling them is, You cannot put off serving God. You cannot put off what God wants you to do, what God is leading you to do, what God has called you to do, what God has placed right in front of you, the ministry of the gospel, the opportunity to serve the Lord, the opportunity to be part of the work of the Great Commission. You cannot put that off because, you know what, I'm going to take a year and I'm going to go move somewhere and I'm going to get involved with this business, and I'm going to buy and sell, and I'm going to make a profit. And uh, why would you do that? As James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Because your life is what? It's a vapor, and it appears for a short time and vanishes away. Is James saying that it's wrong for a person to move to another city and get involved in a business and make a profit? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, what's wrong is to just kind of do that without seeking what God's will for your life is first. If I'm going to make a decision like that, look, there may be things right here and right now in my life that God wants me to do, right? And if I just up and pull out of all that, there may be things that God had marked out for me that are going to get missed out on because I, in my arrogance and in my boasting, as he referred to, up and walked away from something that God wanted to accomplish. And so when I do that, what this does is it shows that it is possible for a Christian to sinfully step outside of what God's will for him is. I think some people view the sovereignty of God as almost an absolute thing where God is just pushing buttons and everything that you do, good or bad, is actually God doing it. James doesn't seem to think that way at all. James seems to think that it's possible for a Christian in his arrogance to get outside of God's will. And that's why he warns them, don't do that. Otherwise, there's no need for James to say this because... Then if you went to some other city and bought and sell for a year, that would by default be God's will for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. That's a wrong way to look at the sovereignty of God. The right way to look at the sovereignty of God is the way the Bible does, which is when it says things like, why do you call me Lord, but don't do the things that I say? Lord means sovereign. Why do you call me sovereign, but don't do the things that I say, which implies that it's possible to not do what a sovereign God wants you to do. And that's true of James here as well. You see, what James is saying is, whatever it is in your life, remember that your life is short in comparison to the grand scheme of things which this great plan of the gospel being preached and churches being built and God in Jesus Christ being glorified, and people being saved, and disciples being made. Your part in that grand scheme of things, which is here for us today, part of this church, but part of something much, much, much bigger than we are. Incomprehensibly bigger than we are. Your part of that is small, like like a vapor that appears for a breath, that appears for a short time and then evaporates and it's gone. Relatively speaking. And so it's important that you know that everything that you commit your life to be in the will of God. That comes through prayer, that comes through counsel, the multitude of counselors. There's safety, the Proverbs says, and many other things. It comes through seeking the face of God. The book of James virtually opens by saying, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. The context is in the hour of trial. You don't know how to work your way through the trial. You go to God, and if you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he gives to everyone liberally without reproach. God is the source of all wisdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God... uh, Ready? You're in a difficult time right now. Do you believe that God has the answer for it? Uh, Listen, I don't mean this is what we say in church. I mean when you go out here and you're by yourself.
1: and You're sitting in an office somewhere. Or you're sitting in a doctor's office somewhere. Or you're sitting in a bank somewhere. Or,
0: or whatever. You're going through some difficult things. Do you believe that God has the answer for you as to what He wants you to do? Right? That's why we recognize that our life is a vapor. And we don't operate outside seeking what his will is. I have, and that's why verse 17 says what? Therefore, it's, it's verse 17 here is a conclusion from what he said. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. But James is saying if you know that God wants you to serve him, but you say, no, I'm not going to be involved with this because I've made plans already to go away for a year and buy and sell. That's the example that's given. Listen, if God has called us, brother, let's, let's just be real simple and plain and real about this. God has called us to do good with our lives. God places those opportunities to do good in front of us. We're not earning our salvation. Please put that stuff out of your head. It's because we have been saved by His grace through faith in Him that God now puts these opportunities to do good and serve Him in front of us. And when we walk away or put off or delay or ignore these opportunities to do good in His kingdom, in His plan before us because of our own plans when we've not even sought His face, we've not even asked Him once, we've not gotten one word of counsel, we've not prayed, we've not deferred to God's will in any way. When we know to do good and we don't do it, it's sin. That's what James is saying. Because James is the great champion of Christians doing good works here in the New Testament, isn't he? Right? Even telling us, as I've already said, that our faith without them Is dead. Now, this deferring, this deferring to the sovereign will of God, you can look back at Philippians. This deferring to the sovereign will of God is all over the Apostle Paul. There is no name it and claim it here. Did you notice that? You know what I mean when I say that, right? I mean... I'm hoping that somewhat this has died out, but I'm perfectly aware of the fact that among a lot of popular, I mean wildly popular in media, Christian preachers and teachers, some really big names, this idea that what you need to do is just speak positive things and what you need to do is just speak what you want your reality to be. you ever heard these sorts of things? Some of you have. Some of you haven't, and for those of you that haven't, I thank God for your ignorance of this, but, but it's, very, it's, very, uh, it's been very popular in televangelism for many years. Some of the most blatant and flagrant edge has been taken off of it because of potent godly criticism of it over the years, but it's still there. This whole idea of what was called the word-faith movement that like, if you're economically struggling, if you're physically struggling, if you're emotionally struggling, if you're struggling anyway, what you need to do is just speak positive things over your circumstances. And when you speak those things, it, it enlists God, binds him, if you will, to do it. Right? And this, this, is, this has been a popular thing. You don't see Paul do that here. See, my problem with that is it's the opposite of what you see here, and it's the opposite of what James says. Paul here doesn't say, yes, and I am coming to you. Don't say anything else. I am going to come to you. No. Paul's more real than that. We're not called, I mean, there's something that's very fake about just trying to speak something and think that, like, somehow if we just say it enough, it'll become reality. We're called as Christians to be perfectly aware of what's going on around us and humbly defer to God's will in whatever the matter may be, which is what Paul does. If I'm being poured out, if I'm going to die, then you know what? I'm glad and I want you to be glad with me, even though I do expect to come to you. But, but maybe I won't. I think there are a lot of modern preachers that if someone said that, what Paul said, they would say, where is your faith brother? You imagine saying to the apostle Paul, "Where is your faith, brother?" It could happen. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus at one point, remember? So, so I mean it does. This sort of thing does go on. But no, it's enough to say about that point, I think. But do you see that in this passage there is a deferring to God's will even over his life.
1: Even over life and death. There is a deferring
0: to God's will.
1: The passage mentions joy and gladness. Like we were
0: singing about happiness. I want to say to you that I believe there is a great connection, a great
1: indisputable, indisputable or undisputable, undisputable, Connection between submitting to God's will and real happiness and real joy. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: You know, Jesus taught us to pray that way. You know what's amazing about that? That's for our own good. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Statements like all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to what? His purposes. God has purposes that He's working out in this world. And those who love Him and those who are the called, the elect, the chosen of Him who are in Christ Jesus Every circumstance that happens somehow works for God's good. You want to find
1: peace? All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. The burden of
0: my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. You want to really experience that? You want to really be able to stand up in church and sing those songs and really mean it? Submit yourself to the fact that God is sovereign and that God, even in the most difficult of your circumstances, knows the answer, knows the resolution, knows the way out, and whatever it is, if you are His elect, if you are His child, if you love Him and you are the called according to His purposes, whatever it is that comes about is going to be for some good in the kingdom of god i hope i hope you mean that amen and i and i hope i can mean that amen as well because that's really what's true and going on here the man is speaking of whether he's going to die or not and then immediately launches off into talking about be glad and i want you to i'm glad and i want you to be glad with me all right that's that aspect of these couple of sentences all right, so I better move along here because we've so far gotten through yes and if. So you see why these things go slow, right? No, now we'll move it along. Now, yes and if. Now, this here, here's maybe the biggest reason why I just committed not to go beyond these two verses today is because I think it's very interesting to understand what he's saying in this next statement. I read the New King James Version, and and it's worded like this. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. When he says there, poured out as a drink offering, you'll notice in the New King James Version that the words as a drink offering are in italics. So in the original Greek, what that means is, the verse would read like this, translated literally into English. Yes, and if I am being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And so I got to thinking to myself, why would the translators add those words as a drink offering? And that got me thinking about what a drink offering was. The first drink offering that appears in the New Testament appears in Genesis chapter 35, and uh, it's actually a great moment at Bethel. Jacob is at Bethel, and God meets him there and says, your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. It's going to be Israel. No, it's a pretty big moment. And it says there that Jacob pours out a drink offering before the Lord. It, of course, had not been codified into the law yet. I'll come to that in a minute. But, but I, think, I think one of the reasons probably that the translators add those words here is because this is identical to something else that the Apostle Paul said. He said this twice in the New Testament. And it's funny because in this book, he says it in a passage where he's about to talk about Timothy. That comes in the next passage. And, and uh, Paul, is, Paul is here writing, and he's saying that he's about to be poured out, and, uh, or if he says, if I'm being poured out, and then after that, he says, I trust the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. The other time that Paul used this phrase, he used it when writing to Timothy. Paul is uh, here in prison and sort of leaning towards expecting that it looks like he's going to be released from this imprisonment, but still deferring to God's will. The other time that he wrote it, he wrote it to Timothy, and it was the other way around. He was still deferring to God's will, but this time, much later in his life, he knew and expected that he was going to die. Yet he was still
1: humbled to the sovereignty of God. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. These aren't, this isn't just a, a, a figure of speech. It's a, it's, well, it is.
0: It is but it's a deliberately chosen one. Now watch this. I love this. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, here he does not say, if I am being poured out. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And look, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I won't take the time to do it now, but if you read the rest of what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul has the same attitude. Whatever God wants. If I'm going to die now, Fine. But, you know, Timothy is very fearful when he writes this second letter to him. And he tells Timothy, I'm mindful of your tears. And he tells him, the Spirit of the Lord is not a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. He really needs to encourage Timothy and kind of like stir him up a little bit, you know? So the, the mood, if you will, maybe, is a little bit different. But he's still humble and still deferring to God's will, even to the point here, actually saying, I'm already being poured out. As a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, look, turn, put your finger back in Philippians chapter 2, and just hold that there so you can come back to it quickly. But go to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. I already told you that the first appearance of a drink offering in the Old Testament. Happens all the way back in the time of Jacob, who when his name is changed to Israel, pours out a drink offering at Bethel before the Lord. But then in in Exodus chapter 28, when some of the earliest of the commands concerning the ceremonial religion of the Old Covenant are being given out uh, in context with the building of the tabernacle, you have this you have this concept of the drink offering coming up so exodus chapter 29 exodus 29 and verse 38 exodus 29 38 it says this now this is what you shall offer on the altar two lambs of the first year day by day continually one lamb you shall offer in the morning And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Doesn't that give tremendous? Doesn't that give tremendous power off the subject a little bit? But tremendous substance to John the Baptist's statement when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of these daily sacrifices that the book of Hebrews says every priest stands daily offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Jesus fulfilled in His own sacrifice. The purpose for all of these sacrifices, right? So, verse 40. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning. Ready? Ready? For a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. It's God speaking. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Do you see what the drink offering was? It was just a sweet offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord.
1: Now look at Philippians. Paul says, what? This is a man, this is a man speaking of the possibility of his own death, having committed no crime. He's speaking of his
0: own death when he's not guilty of any capital crime that he should be killed. He knows he's in prison because of false statements that were made about him. He knows he's in prison because it's convenient for the Romans to hold on to him so there's no riots in Jerusalem and everything else. He knows that. and He says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and I think that as a drink offering is added because he's saying in essence the same thing that he said to Timothy later. And in Timothy, he uses the words, they're not in italics, as a drink offering. So these words are put in by the translators to show us when he says poured out, what he means is poured out as a drink offering. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of
1: your faith. You see it? He's saying, My death, if it comes, will be a
0: sweet aroma to God. For the purpose of what? The building up of your faith. In other words, if I have lived and ministered and served to the point where it has cost me my life even in unrighteous circumstances, even if I am unjustly killed,
1: it is a sweet offering to God and I am glad because of you, Philippian Christians. And now, I am happy all the day. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed.
0: Hymn writers understood that you could say things like that because you have this attitude of the Christian that even if I am unjustly killed, it is a sweet offering to God because what I have done to get myself into all of this trouble, ready, ready, has been for the better of others. Others. And herein, brothers and sisters, listen carefully. I don't mean to play psychology with you here or anything like that. But here comes one of the keys to happiness. Here comes one of the keys to being happy in Christ. Really experiencing the joy of the Christian. You, like Christ, like Paul, devote your
1: life to the blessing and the benefit of others. Why often do we struggle? Why often
0: do we internally find misery and sometimes can't even figure out why? Why often do anxieties and depressions and, 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 and just the blues and, and, and just all sorts of things, and I'm not playing mental health professional here in psychology, I'm completely 100% not qualified for that, but here I am trying to show you that God's word shows that this man is able to talk about joy because his life has not been devoted to himself! He has not spent a second sitting around thinking about himself. Do you see it? Look what he says. If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice in the day of Christ. No, I I jumped the wrong. I, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He's happy if he's dying. He's happy if he's going to die because the purpose of his life was not to get better himself. He's happy because the purpose of his life was to make them better in the name of Christ. And he saw it happen. And even if it cost him his life in unjust
1: circumstances, I rejoice with you and I want you to rejoice with me. Sometimes we go through life and we inflict on ourselves misery, internal turmoil that is so unnecessary. And I think that if we examine ourselves as the Bible calls us to do, we should look and say, am I just focused on myself here? I mean, look at your life. What do you live for? If you ask any Christian who's ever been in church for any
0: length of time, what is love? Almost every one of them, if they've sat and listened to decent preaching or read the Bible for themselves or whatever, will be able to answer, love is putting the interests of others ahead of myself.
1: We all know that. May I suggest to you that knowing that and not doing it is worthless.
0: This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says. I give all my... Even if I do things, if I don't have love in my heart, if my motive is
1: not the bettering of others, even if I do actively do things, it's worthless. May I suggest to you that we should all be like examining ourselves. I mean, I mean, I have
0: known and know people who battle and struggle with internal turmoil and misery and hardship and difficulty and part of me just wants to hug and squeeze and say, stop thinking about yourself. It's a hard thing for me to say because it sounds so terribly judgmental and I don't mean to be that way, but sometimes I just what
1: in your life is about anybody else? What do you just sit and stare at your phone and think about yourself all day?
0: What do you think you're gonna be? If your whole life is about pursuing your own happiness, if your whole life is about the headlong pursuit of only your own interests, isn't it an ironic thing? that if you devote your whole life to pursuing your own happiness, you're not going to find it. But if you use your life to pursue the betterment of others, guess what you'll find? Your own happiness. That's what's going on in these sentences. He's able to say, even if I die, I want you to rejoice because I'm being poured out like that sweet smelling aroma to God that the law talked about. Oh, when you make those sacrifices every day, it's not just kill the lamb and sprinkle the blood. Kill the lamb and sprinkle the blood. Kill the lamb and sprinkle the blood. No, no. Kill the lamb, sprinkle the blood, but you make sure you pour out that oil and that flour and that wine because as that goes up, that's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And Paul says, I'm being poured out like that on the altar of your faith. And if that's what's going to happen, I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice with me. His life was all about them, and because his life was all about them, he had, now I am happy all the day. All is at rest.
1: I, and my Savior, am happy and blessed. Am I making too much of this, do you think? Good. I don't think so either. Um, There's a complete selflessness in all of this. And I think that's something that we should be looking at our own lives and isn't, isn't it an amazing thing how the ways of the Christian are so different than the ways of the world? There are people that are in relationships that are miserable. There are people
0: There are people who are not in relationships who are miserable because they want to be. There are people that are in relationships and they're miserable because the relationship is not what they want to be, so they want to get out. There are people that are not in relationships and they're miserable because they think like everyone else has one, so I want to be in one too.
1: There are people who are rich.
0: Rich, I mean, obscenely wealthy to the point where they never have to have a financial concern in their life ever again who are miserable. There are people who are poor and want the riches of those people
1: because they think the riches will make them happy even though those people are miserable. See, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not supposed to look at the world that way.
0: We're told earlier in this passage that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and we're supposed to shine as lights. I don't look for my happiness in other people and what they can give me and what they can do for me. I don't look for
1: happiness in in material, in wealth. I don't look for happiness in entertainment. When I walk closely with Jesus, listen to this,
0: even that, I don't just walk closely with Jesus because of what I can get out of that. You hear what I
1: said? You can even walk with God wrong. Wrongly. I walk with God and I want to see what he places in front of me so I can devote my life to his will. I want to serve others.
0: And I want to do it with the right motive. I don't want to serve others just so I can have everybody look at me. That's fleeting too. You know, all of life is the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry to say. It's absolutely true. It's all chasing of the wind,
1: except your closeness with God. You walk with God. You ask Him to lead you, and to show you what He
0: wants you to do in service to others. Isn't that what this passage is about? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? Went, was obedient even to the point of death on the cross? Isn't that what Paul is saying here? If I'm being poured out as a drink offering, I'm glad, and I want you to be glad with me. God, Lord, show us what we can do for the good of others, and then watch the peace that he supplies in the midst of it. And listen, I don't mean just like the good that I can do for others who are my friends. So that's good, too. That is good. That that will definitely help you a lot. But sometimes we have to look beyond just our own little circle, my family. It's really easy for me to do good for Roberta, Jonathan. It's very easy for me to do that. And and I should. I should do that. Especially as a husband, right? But, But God puts opportunities for me to do good he really does this. He gives me opportunities to do good
1: for people who hate me. This is not preacher talk. I'm speaking from experience. He gives me opportunities to do good for people I don't even know.
0: Complete strangers. He gives me opportunities to do good with my life, which really belongs to Him. He gives me opportunities to do good, which probably are going to yield zero benefit to myself in a material sense.
1: James says, if I know to do good and don't do it, to
0: me it is sin. And that's why Paul has this unbelief. Unless Paul's just blowing smoke here and it's not true. I doubt that. I think Paul's really writing sincerely here right? telling us the truth. I mean, yeah, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, right. You might die and you're glad. No, I think he's telling the truth. That's why he's able to do it. Because his life is devoted to the betterment of others. If I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and
1: rejoice with me Um, there's a second little facet to this when he says I am glad
0: and rejoice with you all notice in verse 18 even the rejoicing he doesn't just take for himself he turns it around and says what for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me what does he do? See, even in this, do you, know, do you know what can happen? When we simply focus on ourselves, one of the things that we can do, maybe a little bit, is kind of bemoan what we perceive to be the lack of attention that others give us. What Paul does here is he releases them from any sense of burden or guilt towards him, right? That's part of his selflessness. There might be an inclination in these Philippian Christians to feel guilt over the fact that the Apostle Paul might die because of what he labored to do for them. This man might die We're sitting here enjoying life as a church here in Philippi. And this man who labored and sacrificed is sitting there in prison. Paul says, I rejoice and for the same reason you also rejoice with me. So selfless, so complete in his selflessness is that he says, I don't even want you to worry about this at all. I
1: rejoice with you and I want you to rejoice with me. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering
0: on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and
1: rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. We all ought to desire that kind of release of self-importance and self-motive to God. That He may lead us in all things. Close with this thought. This whole
0: idea of Paul just viewing his life as something that was totally about the betterment of others and was totally about being poured out as this sacrifice. Does it remind you of anything else that he said that was very famous? How about Romans chapter 12 and verse 1? What does Romans
1: 12.1 say? Turn there and we'll close there. Romans 12.1 Romans 12.1
0: Listen to this language. I beseech you, beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There you go. There you go. That's, that's what Paul saw his physical life in his body as. A sacrifice. So whether in his death he was a sacrifice, here he speaks of in his life being a sacrifice. I present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and on top of that, not just your body, but what else? Your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we surrender our bodies and our minds to the Lord as a sacrifice to Him. If you will really do that, If we will view God as someone to be served, here you go, the crux. Ready? Pay attention. If you view God as someone to be served, as opposed to someone who day by day serves me, I think you'll have the right mindset and you will find more peace and more happiness in that. Christ did serve us. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. God does serve us. That's what His grace is. His grace is just His goodness to us that we don't earn and deserve. But as I walk with Him day by day, if I view my God as someone to be served, as opposed to simply someone who serves me, that right, you know, my body a sacrifice, my mind not conformed to the world, but transformed, then I will find that peace and joy
1: and be able to say, now I'm happy All
0: the
1: day. Stand up with me and let's sing this last
0: hymn that we have here today. Ken, Fanny, come on back up here. Let's sing and then we're done for today.